Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you with thankful hearts, knowing that you are our Creator, knowing that you have given us the Savior, knowing that you are the one that brought us to worship you this day. We come before you, Father, knowing that you are the God that is able to forgive sins because of the work of Christ. And we confess, Father, that we are sinners in need of your grace even this very hour. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that there would not be any sin that would hinder us to worship you in a manner that is pleasing to you. We pray that we would not cherish sin in our heart, Father, that there would be conviction and that we would repent and confess our sin so that we might be right with you. We thank you, Father, for such a great Savior who came to save us from all of our sins, to remove them as far as the east is from the west, to remember them no more. What a great and glorious promise that is. And we come, Father, confessing that we are weak and that we need him every hour. We need your Spirit to strengthen us to give us wisdom, to give us understanding of your word this day so that we might rightly apply it to our hearts. We pray, Father, that our aim in life would be to be with thee in heaven, that our aim in life, Father, would be to store treasures in heaven. We pray, Father, that you would teach us this day what we are to do, that we would be obedient, that our heart would be submissive to your will that we would have understanding of what your word says so that we might rightly apply it to our life. We pray for the salvation of sinners, whether it be here at Grace or elsewhere where the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world. Pray that many would come into your kingdom this day. Pray that all that would be said and done would be pleasing to you. We pray for those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and their needs. Pray that you would bring them back to us quickly. We pray, Father, that we would realize that life is so short, even as we have seen this week with the earthquake there in Turkey of literally thousands upon thousands dying. Lord, we know that life can be so short and then the judgment. Cause us to be aware of that. Cause us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the face. Cause us to understand your truth and to cry out to you for mercy and grace. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Turn with me again to the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll pick up where we left off last week with verse 19. We'll read verse 19 through 21 as we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we looked at the first half of chapter 6, we saw that it primarily dealt with prayer. We looked at the model prayer that Jesus gave us, and then we looked at fasting and praying. Now that we come to the second 
half of chapter 6, we see that he continues to deal with righteousness concerning the intent of our heart. The emphasis is on our life's aim as his children. How do we, lose, how do we use our riches? How do we lay up is the great principle that he's teaching in these verses as he points out there in verse 19, 20, and 21. So we see that Jesus continues to address the false ideas that the religious leaders of his day had. They themselves thought that they could earn their righteousness by external duties that they saw as very important in their life, but yet they never dealt with the heart. Now, when I think about this, I think about my 40-year-plus of ministry, and I have come to realize that people hear what they want to hear. And these religious leaders were hearing really what they wanted to hear as far as their own religion was concerned and not what Jesus was seeking to get across to them. Now, this happens often in counseling. Many who go to counseling, sad to say, have already made up their mind in what they want to hear. Uh, they really and truly often come to a counselor simply seeking the approval of their counsel, counselor. They want to say, here's what I'm going to do, and they want him to give the stamp of approval on their ideas. Now, most, of course, are guided by what they've heard from other people, from their parents, from their teachers, from their friends, neighbors, even politicians, and they're really and truly not interesting in hearing what God's Word says. And these religious leaders were like that. They weren't really interested in really knowing God's Word. Even though they proclaimed to know God's Word, they didn't want to know it because we see that very clearly when Jesus tells them exactly what God's Word taught, they rejected it even to the point to where they wanted to get rid of the messenger, Christ Himself. Now we know that Jesus, as He continued to teach them, clearly pointed out to them that their very words were condemning them. His words simply that he spoke condemned them. He said there in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, in dealing with the parable of the seed or the sower or the soils, whatever you want to call that particular parable, it says there about the birds coming in and snatching away. He says, therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has... To him more is given, and whoever has not, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. So Jesus explaining the parable and talking about the birds of the air coming and taking away the seed. After they heard it, they did not digest it, they did not listen to it, they did not apply the word, so therefore the birds came and snatched it away so that they no longer could have that which Jesus had given them. And of course, this speaks of the religious leaders. We know that the Jews held a false understanding about the Messiah. They had a false understanding about His character, about His mission, about His nature, as far as the kingdom was concerned. They had made up their mind. They were going to believe what they wanted to believe, and Jesus wasn't going to change their mind. Now, many are like that today. They have no true knowledge of the Messiah, why He came, what he taught, what he accomplished, and what he's even doing in our day and time. They have their own ideas. And his teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount 
hasn't changed. What he said 2,000 years ago holds fast today. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to grasp the claims that he makes concerning God's righteousness, his righteous requirement of his law and man's sinfulness. So it boils down to this. It boils down to the necessity of the new birth. Unless we're born again, we cannot understand the things of God. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, and Nicodemus didn't even understand that. He asked a question, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? I mean, and Jesus pointed out to him, you're a Pharisee and you don't understand these things? He should have understood them, but he did not understand them because his mind was not a spiritual mind. Now, the Jews thought they were spiritually God's children. Yet, we know that they were not. And they, of course, lived simply by their outward religious acts. And they thought that that was enough. They thought that their outward religious acts were pleasing to God and that it in itself had earned them salvation. So Jesus addresses this mindset. We've seen it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Time and time again, He addresses this particular mindset that it's not you, but it's what God has done. It's not the works that you accomplished, but it's what God has put in your heart and changing your heart so that you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, many think just like the Jews today. If they do some religious act, they think that it's pleasing to God. I mean, they have a checklist. They make their checklist and say, okay, I went to church, boom. I gave offering, boom. I've said a prayer, boom. And they think if I do all of those things that I have on my checklist, then I'm okay. I've pleased God. But Jesus declares what? I think you may remember these verses. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you see the contrast between God's words and man's idea? If you don't, I pray that you would come to see. Because there is a great contrast between what man thinks and what God says. Now Jesus announces to those who are listening to Him, primarily His followers, and He announces to them not to lay up treasures here on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. Now this exhortation, very practical. He speaks about our treasure, our heart. And He approaches it first by stating what we should not do, And then he states what we should do, and then he gives the principle of that. And he also gives us the reason for doing it. He teaches us that happiness, the happiness that he imparts, is not carnal, it's not worldly, it's it's not fleshly, but it's spiritual. So he's talking about spiritual things, and those who understand spiritual things are those that have a spiritual mind. So this happiness He gives will be perfected, not here on earth, but it will be perfected in heaven. But it begins here on earth. So that's why He's addressing it and dealing with it here on earth. Citizens of this world devote the greater part of their time and energy on 
seeking to obtain things for themselves. They set their heart on things rather than upon God. And this is what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing things. Treasures are things. In John MacArthur's book, Overcoming Materialism, he uses this little synopsis, I guess you could call it. I started not to read it, but then after I got to the end of the sermon, I went back and I put it in. So listen to what he says about things. Mr. and Mrs. Things are very pleasant and successful couple. At least, that's the verdict of the most people who intend to measure success by a thingamometer. And when the thingamometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There he is, sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by the large number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat on, things to shine, things that are new, things, things, things. Things to clean with, things to watch with, things to clean, things to wash, things that amuse, things that pleasure, things that watch watch, and things that play, things that are long on hot summer days, things that are cold on cold winter days, things that are big things which are they to live, things for the garden, things for the lounge, things for the kitchen, things for the bedroom, things that are four wheels, things that have two wheels, things that put on top of four wheels, things that put on behind four wheels. Things are added to interior of the things that are four wheels. Well, Mr. Thing, I got bad news for you. What's that? You can't hear me. The things are in the way. But then... That's the problem with things. Look at the thing standing behind, outside your house. Whatever the value of that second-hand thing dealer is meant a lot to you, but then an error in judgment and a temporary loss of concentration, and that thing can be a mass of tangled metal being towed off to the junkyard. In spite of how silly this sounds, we are basically committed to acquire things. Sadly, the people in Jesus' day were not that different from us. They were also basically committed to acquiring things. They had their hearts set on investing in them. Oh, we're not all guilty. I mean, we're all confronted every day with things. Now, let me say, we have to have things, right? I mean, you have to have that thing that sits on four wheels to get to work, or two wheel to get to work, either one you want to use. But we all have to have things. The question is, what do we do with the things that we have? So let us look at these three verses and see what Jesus says as far as declaring as far as what we do with these things and what is the real value and truly lasting value of them. First, what we should not do with our treasure, or you could say our things, which is all about things. In other words, our money, our valuables, our home, everything that we have is in more or less being spoken of here. 
by Jesus, our treasure. And he points out that our goal in life isn't to focus on things. It isn't to focus on our wealth or storing up treasures here on earth. His disciples are not to be consumed with getting rich for personal gain and happiness because they will not find happiness in those things. If you ask a person, what's your goal in life? Most will tell you something like this. Well, after I finish school, after I go to college, and after I get my degree, I want to get a good job paying at least six figures. And I want to have a family. I want to have a home. I want to have a nice car. And they go on and on and on and on telling you what they would like to have. All of these things. Now, very few, if any, will speak about spiritual things when you ask them that question. For most believe that success comes through having things. And when you ask that question, most believe that they are, will be successful if they have those things. Now I've learned that the majority who are successful in having things aren't really pleased, aren't really satisfied with these things. Even though they have everything that they wanted to attain, there still is something that is missing in their life. Even though they've received everything, they're, they're not satisfied. For when their heart is focused on materialism, it will never be satisfied. We saw that there in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. In other words, he's never satisfied with his income. He's never satisfied. He never has enough. The question was put to John D. Rockefeller. How much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said, just one more dollar. In other words, he's never happy. He's got to have another dollar. See, the desire for wealth can be a great temptation. And we must pray daily to not fall into that temptation. Listen to what A.W. Pink says. It is only as we duly maintain communion with God in the secret place, we talked about that last week, that we are equipped and enabled for the trials the way we journey toward the heavenly Canaan. Unless our hearts be firmly set upon the promised land, they will turn back to Egypt and lust after its flesh pots. Now, you know what a flesh pot is? It's kind of like what we had in the old days. We don't have it anymore. You know, one of those big old black pots that sit on the fire and they cooked in. Mr. Jimmy, did you ever cook in one of those? You know, they fixed the stew and everything. Well, that, that's what the flesh pot. In other words, longing to be back in Egypt eating the meat there. And Jesus addresses the heart of his hearers, exhorting them to not have a spirit of covetousness and teaches them to aim at being spiritually minded with their things so that they think more about the kingdom of God and how to use the things that God gives you in the work of the kingdom of God. Now in the original Greek, 
layup, the Greek word, is, is more forceful than layup. It signifies a gathering of to yourself, a hoarding, a heaping up. Now, I've never watched the movie. I've seen some previews of the um, a TV show, I mean, of hoarders. I don't know how many of you watched that. But it reminded me when I saw that preview of someone I knew many, many years ago. Uh, you could not even get into his place, and he wouldn't let anybody in his place. I did hear one person that tried to go in and said, you can't go into his place, because there was so much stuff, so many things there in his place, so much that he had stored up. And this is what Jesus is addressing, to treasure up for yourself, treasure the, the overabundance of things Things could be costly or not. I mean, it can be gold, silver, stone, money, property, land, all these things of value. But your intent is to use these things for yourself, for your own survival. That's what a hoarder does. I've got to have these things because I need it for the future. There's no telling what might happen in the future. So therefore, I've got to have all of these things and I'm going to keep them all for myself. That's the thinking. And it says there upon earth. Now, that is primarily referring to the kinds of treasure instead of where it's to be put. For earthly treasure may be laid up here on earth while we live here in the world. So hoarding is what Jesus is addressing. So what are your plans for what you possess? Is your goal to do like the foolish farmer? to build bigger and better barns and sit back and look at all that you have, thinking that you will enjoy life for a long, long time from all of your material belongings like that foolish farmer. I read this week in a particular article about the wealthiest individuals, and if I was to name some of them, you would know who they are, who donate to research to improve the longevity of life. So they're giving literally millions of dollars to research to find out if there's a cure or if there's something somebody can take for the longevity of life. Now, why do they do that? Why do the most wealthy donate to such research? Because this world's their home. And they want to live in it as long as they can and enjoy all of these things that they have for themselves. I mean, they've come to realize that a funeral hearse does not pull a U-Haul to the graveyard. They've come to realize that. So therefore, they want to enjoy all that they can while they're still living on this earth, because they know they're not going to enjoy it there in the grave. Matthew Henry says, Christ's design isn't, to deprive us of our treasure, but to direct us in the choice of it. A good caution against making the things that are seen, that are temporal, our best things, and placing our happiness in them. Now some insist that there are no limitation, that we should not accumulate anything, accumulate any money or anything as far as earthly possessions. Now, to insist upon this is simply ridiculous. I mean, it contradicts Scripture. 
Those who believe this, then, then you ought to tell them, say, well, then go say everything you got and give to the poor. That's what you ought to tell them. If they think that's the way, that no limitations, that you shouldn't have anything. I don't think most of them do that, but that's what you ought to tell them. Because Jesus forbids us from, or Jesus forbids us from not working diligently. He encourages us to work diligently. He encourages us to provide for ourselves and for our, our family. The scripture over and over again speaks of that. Paul clearly teaches in Romans 12, 11, Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And then 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. We command us this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now it's sad that our government allows people to eat that are capable of working. Uh, scripture says don't do that. And that's why a good group of people were raised expecting the government. Now when we talk about the government, do you realize that it's our money that we're talking about? It's our taxes that are sent in that turn around and give to people who are able to work. Now, there are those who are not able to work, and we are to help them. And it should be the church, in reality, that is helping them. But yet, at the same time, we must realize that we are to be working, and people are to be working if they're able to work. Now, we aren't to depend on others to provide for us. Only if we're unable to work and we need their help. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives us power to get wealth. Now what does He mean gives us power? Well, it gives us the ability. Gives us the ability to work and gain the wealth. And there were many in the Old Testament who were wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Jacob was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Boaz, David, Solomon, you could go on and on. There were many in the Old Testament that were wealthy. Nor does Jesus forbid planning for the future. It's good to plan for the future. It's the slugger who is admonished to learn from the ant, to observe what the ant does. The ant gathers together. He gathers together for the winter months. He gathers his food. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 speaks of that. And Paul states in 2 Corinthians 12, 14 that the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. There used to be a bumper sticker. I don't know. I hadn't seen it lately, but uh, on cars it would say, I am spending my children's inheritance. Well... That's not what it's supposed to do. Uh, it's good for parents to help children out. Now, again, we have to be careful in that. We're not to just give everything to our children to where they don't earn their self and they expect, expect the parents to give to them. No, they're to be diligent. It's good to start teaching your children at a very early age that they have responsibilities. It's good to give them chores around the house and show them, okay, that if you want to earn some money, do these things around the house. If you don't do them, you're not going to earn money and don't come to me and ask for money if you're not going to help around the house. We need to teach them. I think that's one thing that fails in a lot of homes today and why, again, uh, children, when they get old enough, don't work because they've never been taught to work. Uh, all you have to do is talk to my children, and I taught them very well, and my wife taught them very well, 
And they knew what a hard day work was. I mean, some people used to say to me when I was doing uh, my bivocational work and carpenter work, they said, I can't believe you're treating those girls like boys. I said, I'm not treating them like boys. I said, they're just doing chores around here and they enjoy doing it and they're a big help to me. And uh, they can hold a board on one end and pick it up and do things like that. Uh, and I taught them that because I also would tell them, I said, you might marry a husband that can't do anything and, and you need to do it around the house. And I'm not going to go any further than that. But anyway, uh, we need to teach our children to work. Now, uh, Paul also says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those in his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So therefore, we must provide for those in the household, especially the household of faith. Again, we must do that in wisdom. So Jesus is not condemning anyone possessing money, anyone being wealthy. What he's addressing is how you deal with what you have and the various forms of covetousness, excessively seeking wealth, where things become a person's God. Now he also condemns seeking after only worldly good instead of that which is spiritual for his soul. Like Esau. Remember the story of Esau children and Jacob his brother. And uh, Jacob deceived his brother Esau and one of the things that he did to uh, get his birthright, he said when he came in from hunting, uh, Esau did and he was starving to death and Jacob said, uh, I'll give you a bowl of mush. Uh, he said, well, give me a bowl. He said, no, wait just a minute. Now let's have a little deal here. How about that birthright you got? Look, I'm starving to death. I'll give you anything. He said, okay, I'll give you a bowl of mush, but sign that birthright over to me. He didn't think long term. He thought immediate, instant, instant gratification and did not care about his birthright. Sadly, the majority spend their lives laboring after things that do not satisfy or give instant gratification and then disappear. I mean, that bowl of mush only lasted just a little while for Esau and his birthright was gone forever. How many people seek satisfaction for just a simple fleeing moment? Even like that rich farmer that I mentioned earlier that Jesus talks about, he never considered his soul. He never considered the day that he would pass away and have to give an account. Jesus also condemns idolatry, putting trust in worldly things, treasuring up here on earth and setting your heart on those things instead of setting your heart on the true and living God. And later Jesus points out that this is why it was so hard for the rich young ruler to enter into heaven. And he makes the statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now some say, well that eye of a needle is talking about this place, a little cubby hole that you went through and had to get down on his knee. That's not what Jesus is saying. Now what Jesus is addressing, he's saying it's impossible for a rich man that has his heart set on things to go into heaven. In other words, he has to be willing to give up everything, just as he just tells us in that particular story with the rich young ruler. He was unwilling. His riches increased and he set his heart on those things. 
Now, I know that uh, when our riches increase, as David says in Psalms 62, 10b, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with riches increasing, but he's saying what? If they increase, don't set your heart on them being increasing. I've shared this story before about church member who came to his pastor and he, he said, Lord, uh, Pastor, I, I promised God that if he would bless my business, I would continue to tithe what my business made. And his business grew. And he came back to the pastor after he was making a great profit, which had increased time and time again. And he said to the pastor, what I do, he said, I'm making so much that my tithe is is way on up there. And I made this promise to God. So what do I do? He said, you want to keep your promise? He said, yes. Well, get down on your knees. Lord, help old Joe's business to decrease so that he can tithe. Joe jumped out. Wait a minute, Pastor. Uh -uh, uh -uh." (laughs) I mean, that's how we are sometimes with God. We promise him one thing, but when something else comes about, we want to... Beneg on our promise. See, Jesus is not forbidding laying up treasures for his kingdom work. What he's forbidding is selfishly laying up treasures for ourselves without any regard whatsoever for the kingdom of God. Pink also says, This is indeed a devilish practice for anyone of us as a steward to dispense our portion to the glory of God and the good of His fellow man. The poor are God's poor. The creatures are in His hand. And therefore, he who acquires is to be a good steward, to be faithful in seeing to it that each of them has a portion from God. God will call the rich to an account. Therefore, let each of us live in the light of that day of reckoning. Let us seek grace to preserve from hoarding up the riches for ourselves, from putting our trust in them, and from making them our chief delight. See, laying up only for ourselves often opens up for that wealth to be destroyed, as pointed out in the rest of the verse by these things that destroy it, the corruption, the decay, the defraud, and the enemy. And we've all experienced that in some way or another. We've had things rust away. We've had things rot away. We've had things stolen from us. But the main point is to make sure that these things, even though you may lose them, were not supreme in your life. To acquire them is not a sin. But once you require them, what do you do with them? Do you use it for the glory of God? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which we ought to all have memorized, therefore whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, and that includes our treasures. Now second, and our second point is not nearly as long as our first point. I know you're glad to hear that. See that we are to lay up treasures in heaven. Having seen what we must not do, we must see where they're to go. Now, Jesus tells us 
what we are to do with our treasures. So the question may come to your mind, how do we lay up treasures in heaven? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sake, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. See, only God is able to make us rich in heavenly treasure. God is the author. God is the giver. And He graces us with treasures, with things. So what are we able to do with them? How are we able to use them for His glory? Now to better understand this, let me mention two truths concerning it. First, our real treasure is what? Is Christ. Christ Himself. He alone is all our good. He alone is able to give us the happiness that we need. Christ gives us some parables pertaining to this, pointing out who He is. We have the parable of the great uh, pearl of great price. Remember, once He found that pearl, He was willing to give up everything to have that pearl. Then the treasure that was found in the field. He did what? He went and He bought the field. No matter what price it was, He bought the field so that He would have that treasure. And then again, as I've already mentioned, the rich young ruler who he told to go and sell everything and come and follow me. And we see that the rich young ruler was unwilling to sell all that he had to follow Christ for he had much. Now the Old Testament saints understood this. God said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He said that to Abraham. He said, I'm your shield, Abraham. I'm your great reward. He told Job. Or Job said, the might almighty shall be thy gold. He saw God as his gold. David declared, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. I have a good inheritance. He is my treasure. Psalm 16, 5 and 6. So God incarnate is our true treasure. For in him are hid as Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. Our very life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 3. Therefore, I am not governed by things. I'm not governed by my treasure. Rather, I am governed by God, and God gives me the ability to govern them for His glory. Second, we lay up treasures, the divine and endurable riches which are found in Christ by faith and faith alone. See, when we surrender to Christ as offered in the Gospels to us, what happens? Well, we then therefore have the treasure, Christ who is our treasure. And daily we are able to draw near to Him and we receive unsearchable riches. Living water. Remember what he said to the woman at the well? That I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. Now she didn't understand it at first. She said, oh, I don't have to make this trip every day if you'll give me that water. It was spiritual water that he was talking about. This spiritual water that we're able to receive. A great treasure. And when we follow his example that He left us, we're able to deny self, 
and we're able to live for God using all that God has entrusted to us for His glory. And that in itself is a reward. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God doesn't forget. Sometimes we act as if God didn't forget. God, don't you remember what I did for you? And you're not doing much for me today. God doesn't forget. God remembers all things. And as Hebrews tells us here, He remembers how we minister to the saints and to minister to others. He doesn't forget. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in heaven that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So he's talking about those things that cannot be destroyed here on earth because they're stored in heaven. Now just about everybody says that they hope for happiness and they hope to go to heaven. But what is your chief aim here on earth? What are you most taken up with? In other words, what do you pursue And what do you enjoy here on this earth? This is a test. This is how we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. See, Jesus gave this test to the rich young ruler, and guess what? He failed the test. He went away sadly, for he had much. What does your soul desire? What does your soul delight in? What does your soul seek to obtain in this life? The things of this world or the things of God? Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I mean, two opposites, flesh or the Spirit. Where's your mind set? I mean, what is precious to your heart? What engages your most serious thoughts at night? This determines where your prize is. Earthly or heavenly treasures. Remember, if we have been blessed with much, we must use what we have been blessed with for God's glory. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18 how those who are rich are to use their wealth. Jesus said there in Matthew 25, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirst, you gave me water. Now, now they came back and said, Lord, when did we feed you? When did we give you water? He said, If you've done it unto the least of these... You've done it unto me. Do we, do we really realize that we are pilgrims? That we are strangers in this world? That we are passing through this world? And, and we are in Vanity Fair. Ladies, you know where Vanity Fair is if you're reading Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if y'all dealt with that. I don't think y'all got that far yet or not. But some of you may read ahead and know the story. We're in Vanity Fair. And... and 
Pilgrim reveals all that he had to deal with when he was Vanity Fair. I mean, when you're in Vanity Fair, you have to deal with what? John tells us in 1 John. You have to deal with the world, the flesh, and what was the third? The devil. World, flesh, and devil. And we're dealing with the world, flesh, and devil every day. Martin Lloyd Jones says if we have a right view of ourselves in this world as pilgrims, it reminds me this morning of what, um, who's that pastor I listened to coming to church? <laughs> My mind's at the, uh, you know, the guy up there in Cleveland, <laughs> Alistair Begg, it came to me finally. Anyway, he, he was saying, You can't know man until you know God. This is more or less what Martin Lloyd Jones is saying here. You got to know God before you can know yourself. He says, so therefore, view ourselves in this world as pilgrims. We must understand God. And then when we understand God, we understand that we're pilgrims. And as children of God going to our Father, everything falls into its true perspective. We begin to think of ourselves only as stewards who must give an account of them. We are not permanent holders of these things that He gives us. So we must view ourselves in that way, as Martin Lloyd Jones says. As stewards, God has made us stewards. We are to be good stewards of what God has given us. And what about practical application? And I hope a lot of already what I said is practical application, but I want to be very specific. I mean, some of you are storing treasures in heaven. I announced opportunity to give to different ministries at the end of the year. And many of you gave to those ministries. I mean, one was the APC vehicle that was needed. And that goal was reached by you and other churches. I mean, we'd set a goal and we went over that goal. We received 135% of what we needed to where we were able to purchase even a newer vehicle that has already been purchased. I saw a picture of it just this week. Uh, Nico and his wife had to come over for a funeral. Her father passed away. He sent me a picture of that vehicle, a beautiful vehicle. And, And I'm so thankful that our church was a part of that. Nearly $10,000 from this church was given toward that vehicle. And I thank God because that vehicle will be used for ministry for individuals as it takes pastors to some 60, well, it won't take them to some 60 because a lot of times we have to fly. When I go to Malawi in June, I will be flying and I won't be in that vehicle. I have to go back again when they're primarily in Africa, southern Africa, to ride in that vehicle that they put about 200,000 miles on the last one that they had borrowed and used it for uh, eight years. But that vehicle will be carrying those pastors to these conferences where the gospel will be shared. Do you see the far reaching of something that is a thing for the glory of God? And how pastors will be reached. Many who call themselves pastors and don't even know Christ. We've had many pastors converted at our conferences. Others will be taught and and they'll go back and they will reform their churches as they're taught the Word of God and bring about reformation. 
And we praise God for that. Books, books will be carried in that vehicle to these conferences that these pastors will purchase and, and many books will be given to them. Others have ministered in other ways. You've ministered to individuals and seeking to help out individuals and, and, and giving them money. And some have opened up your homes and shown hospitality and others have loaned your vehicles, have, have even given vehicles and given other things to members. This is storing up treasures in heaven. Those are the things that we do. And God is pleased when we do those things. And we don't boast about them to other people that we've done them, as, as we talked about that, as we uh, looked at it a couple of weeks ago. We do it, and most of you have, and in secret. We do it because God has placed it on our heart. We don't boast about it. But we thank God for giving us the privilege to do it. To be a part of His kingdom work. I mean, what a privilege it is. And we have another privilege that's coming up that I know of. I've shared it with some of you before, and I think it's time for us to invest more in that work, in that work there in Portugal. I mean, we've already invested in, in taking care of Pastor Tiago and his family, but there's other needs there. There's the seminary that is meeting there at his church on the third floor and, and has shared with us a while back that third floor has to be completely remodeled. Uh, one reason to keep the uh, mildew out of it. They need air conditioning and they need uh, all these shelves to put the books and everything. And it's going to cost them about $100,000 to do it. So I pray that we as a church will be a part of that, that we will give toward that work, and that when he comes in March, that we'll be able to hand him a check to help with that work. So make that a matter of prayer. That, that is investing in the kingdom. I mean, pastors will be taught there at that church building on the third floor. Do you realize that Portugal is primarily Catholic. I mean, there's only like 1% evangelicals. And those that are trained there at that seminary will go out and plant churches and we're praying for a revival. We pray that God will use these pastors to present the gospel and that that nation of Portugal will be transformed by the grace of God. And that it will become a Christian nation. But it, there's a means that it's done. And that's through supporting ministries such as this. Now I can't put such a desire in your heart. Only God can do that. I mean if you don't have that desire. Then there's something wrong. If you call yourself a Christian. If you don't have a desire to tithe. If you don't have a desire to do the work of the kingdom. And I, and I don't try to make you feel guilty about that. I'm just stating the facts. Conviction about things such as that come from the Spirit of God. God is the one that lays things on our heart. Now, simply obedience. I mean, it, it, to be obedient as a Christian, a Christian desire is to obey God in all things. And that includes our tithing and our giving to the work of God. I mean, we support a number of ministries. And it's, it's a privilege that God gives us to be able to support these ministries. 
And one of your desire as far as making more money is so that Lord bless me with more money so I can give more. I mean, I've said before, tenth, uh, tithing is the starting point. Hopefully, as you make more, it won't be just a tenth. It, it, that will grow. And you'll give more and more to the kingdom work. I mean, as I was looking at our budget and I was studying our budget, do you realize that almost one-third of our budget is going toward mission? That's wonderful. Missions and ministries. I mean, most churches never reach that point. And I thank God that you are giving people and you want to see missions accomplished, ministries accomplished, that we're being able to be a part of. The one thing that I do know from God's Word is that when a person is truly converted, he becomes a gracious person. You can see it, and I've mentioned it before, in the story of Zacchaeus. When you're converted, your pocketbook is opened, and you want to work for the Lord, use your finances for the Lord. And what a blessing that is. And what a blessing it is to be able to store up in heaven. But it comes from a changed heart. And may we be a people that demonstrate that God has changed our heart by what we do with our things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he instructs us in how we are to use the treasures that you bless us with. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful in doing that. We thank you that you are the one that puts this desire in our heart, that you are the one that uses the things that we have for your glory and honor. And we pray that as a church that we would continue to be faithful to that task and that you would use us, Father, to accomplish so much more in the future so that your kingdom grows. Father, we pray that we would examine our heart to make sure that our heart and our aim is the glory of God to be used in your kingdom in whatever way you see fit, to use our treasures in whatever way you see fit, Father, for your glory and honor. Thank you, Father, for such a great salvation that causes us to be a gracious people. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.